You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, this is the Projectionist Asmicha. This is the part two of our discussion, and you're going to hear about the history of its wonderful life and how uh, it became the, uh, the the Christmas classic that it was, and also how it, the 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 issues that caused it to be uh, sort of clamped down upon and. That is the end of this discussion. We talk again about uh, the idea of material being copyrighted and being protected. So that's part two. I hope you'll enjoy that as well. It's a wonderful life. And the movie was a flop, even though it was, it was a great film. It was, it was nominated for Oscars. But it it didn't make back the money that it, that was uh, yeah. that was lost. Okay, you know, Capra put a tremendous amount of effort into it. Uh, the the uh, the special effects were the the the, the soap bubbles that that That's the were the that snow won, that won the Oscar. That's right, it won one Oscar for the special effects. Yeah, but um, it was nominated for for best. Well, it has to be, you know, the film that did win that year was a film. Um, uh, was the best years of our lives, which you have to realize right. the in terms of uh, America's um, yeah, coming back from World War II, this seemed to be the film that was the message that America needed. Um, and and by the way, uh, just another, you remember of course the Academy Award winner um, uh, in of the best supporting actor in um, the best years of our lives, correct? The best supporting actor. Um, he was actually a World War II veteran who's, uh, who lost his hand in, a, in a, uh, an accident on a Navy ship. And of course, in the film, uh, the film uh, very glaringly uh, deals with his, uh, wasn't a prosthetic at that time, but he had, in, case of, in place of a hand, he had a hook that he was using. And, you know, he had to attach the hook and... Um, you know, Russell, you know, Russell, because he was a, a vet, because he had lost his hand, and because he did a pretty decent job putting that on, on screen, you know, he, he got the Academy Award. It's interesting that uh, in Charade, going back to Charade for a minute, George Kennedy's character has a hook <laughs> for a hand, too. And it's clear to me that this is a throwback to Harold Russell um, as one of the vets who comes back. In other words, these are the anti, the Charade Hevra are the anti-heroes of um, the best years of our lives. So it was very hard, I think, for uh, It's a Wonderful Life to win in that year. Uh, right. it, it wasn't necessarily the message Hollywood wanted to hear. Also, there is a darkness to the film. Uh, people were not yet used to Jimmy Stewart contemplating suicide and getting angry at his family, um, showing uh, you know, a side of him that people did not want to see. Now, later, of course, uh, Stewart uh, in the early 50s, uh, together with Anthony Mann, Anthony Mann's under Anthony Mann's direction, he uh, made a number of Westerns where he played uh, a character that was clearly uh, had a lot of uh, nefarious tendencies. And it was sort of like, you know, what Hitchcock accomplished with Cary Grant, Anthony Mann was able to accomplish with Jimmy Stewart. But but the public was not yet ready for it in uh and it's a wonderful life. 
um, you know, Stewart, um, uh, it's almost like, uh, but he was nominated for Best Actor. Uh, people realized the performance he did was, again, I don't think anybody can watch It's a Wonderful Life and not be moved by um, you know, the, you know, him asking God to come back to life at the end of the film. Um, I think it's uh, probably the pinnacle, really, of Stewart's whole career. And that includes Vertigo and, um, and uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, both films that I think, you know, Stewart, you know, was able to do amazing things there. But you're right. The film was not, uh, it lost money. Uh, and it was not a flop. And in many ways, um, you know, it, 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 it hurt Capra a lot as well. Uh, you know, he sunk a lot of money in it. And the production company, uh, Liberty Films, ended up basically folding afterwards. Um, but, but again, it, remember the film was made in 1947 and what happens to the film, uh, 46, 28 years later, what happens to it? it? Was 1974 was when they, when it fell into the public domain, nobody seemed to care about it. It went from, uh, you know, one, one student to the other, uh, I think at some point we we spoke last week about Republic Pictures with the with the serials. I think Republic Pictures actually wound up having well, it was a refashioned version of Republic Pictures. Eventually grabbed it, but that was only after, right? You know, again, it was it was only after uh, you know they you know it was they sued for it. But I have to tell you though, you you know, I I, I, you know I know that you know there's been there's 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 you know, uh, lectures out there on YouTube about this subject, but the film was shown even before it fell into the public domain. It was shown continuously on television. I watched it every New Year's Eve with my mother, Shalom. I watched it from the time I was probably around seven years old, and I was born in 1960. So even before it fell in the public domain, the film was being shown on television regularly. Of course, they had to pay rights for it, but it was shown. It, it wasn't like it was afterwards. But it was a favorite. To say that it that, that it it only became popular after film in the public domain, I don't think is a true statement. I think the film it was beloved by me. I can tell you that because my mom was my mom let me stay up on New Year's Eve night, uh, and because they, in WREC in Memphis Channel Three would at midnight would say, Happy New Year, because the movie started at 10.30. And the film, I think, is two hours and 20 minutes, I believe, two hours and 20-something minutes. So at about, at the 90-minute mark of the film, the, 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 there would be a card that, that would be on the screen, Happy New Year. And I remember us all saying Happy New Year to each other. And then the movie would start again. And of course, the movie, and the reason why they did it uh, instead of Christmas, uh, because the movie ends with Old Lang Syne. And therefore, uh, you know, Old Lang Syne is the is the traditional New Year's Eve uh, song. So that's what it was there. So it was even before it's in the public domain, it was increasing in popularity, and it was something that people recognized. But in the public domain, you're correct. It became it, it wasn't only shown once a year; it was shown continuously, and everybody can get a hold of it. And and you could you could make VHSs of it or anything. And and it's probably correct to say that it got in, it wasn't just film buffs and little kids watching with their mother and were loving it. It ends up becoming, it ends up becoming the quintessential 
Christmas film. To the point where it became a joke. It became, you know, that was a running, uh, before there was such a thing as a meme, that was the meme, was that, was uh, you know, they're going to show It's a Wonderful Life again. You know, that's, uh, you know, they keep showing that same movie and then, it, and you know, there'll be all the spoofs on the, on the TV sitcoms and everything just, you know, it would, you would either, you're looking for a Christmas story to tell. It would either be Christmas Carol, would, uh, which, you know, is very easy to translate from, from the text from Dickens to the screen. It, it almost, I think almost every version of the Christmas Carol that I know is pretty faithful. Even the, the ones that are most, the Muppets Christmas Carol, whatever, they're very faithful. And that's another one that was in the public domain that the there was a there was a movie scrooge from the 30s you know based on or a christmas carol something one of that was but it just wasn't quite the same it didn't have the charm uh and and the all-american value of it's a wonderful life so that's why it's a wonderful life really became yeah well, very, well obviously in the united states you know alistair sim did a great job as scrooge it might have been the you know might have been one of the best uh representations of Scrooge, George C. Scott, the uh, uh, television uh, version, 1984, I believe, uh, also was one that needs to be mentioned, and, and, and so many others. I mean, Scrooge has been done so often. Albert Finney and others have, have done it so well. Uh, but you're right. Uh, 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 although there was remakes done of It's a Wonderful Life, Marvel Thomas had a remake of it, uh, playing a woman version of George Bailey. Um, it, 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 it struck a chord in America. And it also, I think it really played into, um, although the best years of our lives had a certain hopefulness of what American life was going to be. I think that, I think it's a wonderful life uh, is so powerful because it, it deals with the frustrations of, uh, of, of, of being a good person. It deals with the, what the sacrifice, the ugly sacrifice sometimes the horrendous sacrifice of what you give up as a person and the frustration. I mean, George Bailey is such a strong character because, you know, you understand why do you have to live for other people and, and constantly have, you know, uh, the, you know, the type of failure and the sense of frustration of not being able to, to get what you want out of life. And I think that spoke to people. It, it, it wasn't just the denouement of feeling good that he gets his life back. I think people were able to follow Jimmy Stewart into hell because many people in the 60s were also feeling that. I think that's part of the reason why the film you know, is that strong. I think people were seeing in you know, Lionel Barrymore's portrayal as, of Potter, and they were seeing you know, you know, the, the industrial complex, the 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 evils let's say of capitalism or the evils of what they were seeing uh, i think you know nobody nobody i don't think there's ever been a uh, a better villain than uh than lionel barrymore in that in that role you know he's <laughs> right he's you know a combination of, of of intelligence and and determination and maliciousness you know <laughs> sort of you know uh, so, so I think there's a reason why the film, you know, builds steam. But as, as I think as you're getting to, once, you know, through a very, you know, it's, it's a very long-winded uh, explanation of how it gets there, but somehow through copyright laws that had to do with the original, um, the original Christmas pamphlet that was the basis of the screenplay, 
right? The uh, the original uh, Van Doren Stern's uh, Christmas pamphlet that he sent out, those rights were somehow able uh, to be, um, those rights were the ones that were sued for because it was, right. because it was based on that, that original, it wasn't a, a treatment that came, uh, sprung straight out of Capra or Joe Swirling's brain, but was actually based on uh, another story. So because of that, the copyright kicks in and allows Republic to sell the rights to NBC and NBC that says, hey, we're only going to show it once a year or twice a year and you got to watch NBC to be able to see it or NBC streaming services that you have to pay a fee for. Um, that sounds a lot different, Yitzchak, than what I was talking about because there, the difference between that original couple, you know, let's say, you know, 80-page treatment that Van Doren Stern wrote and the film with all its you know, whether it's Henry Travers as Clarence or um, um, Donna Reed and uh, everyone else, uh, it's, you know, it, it's a different object. It's something completely different. And, and, and here I think, you know, the copyright laws sound like it's a shtick to be able to clamp down on something and not allow something to really um, be beneficial because it's not Capra and his uh, descendants that are, are getting the benefit. It's the it's it's whoever bought those rights from uh, on the original short pamphlet, and that seems to be a, a misunderstanding of the way copyright should work. Yeah. And uh, years, you know, as longevity increases, as people live longer, and people say, "Well, you're connected to your children, to your grandchildren," I, I think there comes a time that we need to say, "Look." We do want to, you know, earlier in this, uh, I was talking, I said we do, we should protect the, the creators, but at the same time, I think we need to realize that, that after a while, something, as you say, art does have, a, 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 have its own life. And, and not I, only that, but I think, I think if, if something is kept like that, there is, you know, you have the Disney vault where, you know, they, they just wouldn't let things out and that types of things, meaning a lot of things are being denied to us because of copyrights, meaning the things that probably should already be in the public domain should be available and they're being withheld. You know, but I want to make a logical argument for it. And I, and I think the argument would be that you need to balance the realities. Yes, you produced it, but what allowed you to produce it? You produced it based on the, 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 the community, the polity, of this country that allowed you to do that and to withhold that from the descendants of of the people that enabled you would be wrong you should definitely be paid and you should be able to if you were uh, successful in doing something that was uh, important your children and grandchildren they should be uh, set uh, in a way for to be uh, for in residual payments but after a while need to look back and say it wasn't created in a vacuum you created it but you created it and not out of thin air it's not yesh mayayan god created nothing you created it out of the, the the society and the community that you were part of and if it, it, it if it it, it it can't benefit them and because they were part of it too Right. <laughs> the, 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 I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you something. Even the the creators themselves and their families 
like you said, here with the It's a Wonderful Life, the Capra, his heirs, they're not getting anything out of this. It's right. it's it's all so I, I just before I was we we did our shows today, I put on the Criterion channel, my daughter said she wants to see the blob, and I saw they had on Criterion they have the blob with a commentary from the from the director. So I'm friendly with, with the son of the director of the blob. And he was trying to produce a graphic novel of the blob. And he's, he says, you know, Shakespeare says, you know, kill all the lawyers first. He says it's the, the legal battle that he has, uphill battle, to try to produce something based on his own father's work. He cannot, because of how the copyright laws work, he cannot benefit from something that belongs to his family. That's something that his father directed. But then he says, you know, he was talking to one lawyer, Was said, you know, he could produce it as his own memories being on the set, as, a, as opposed to telling the story of the movie. He, w- he could, and still that he was having, originally he thought that would be something he could for sure do, and again, he's he's being prevented from doing that. He 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 produced this this uh, comic book, this graphic novel, but he's not able to sell it because of that reason, and he's he's really suffering from that because it's it's just, it's just not fair. It seems like you know this 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 would take uh, you know a way to you know to cut this Gordian knot and to be able to really have a fairness about what is really part. What is should be protected? What shouldn't? When that protection should should lapse? Um, and you know, uh, and the lawyers, the lawyers were telling him the reason why they are fighting for this is because it is a property that is still valuable, that is still profitable. It's not. It's not just. A, it's not a piece of garbage. The blob. It's something that's that's culturally significant, and therefore he cannot benefit from something that really belongs to his own family. It's. It's really quite a strange situation but i'll tell you on the other hand sometimes just like how the uh, it's a wonderful life became famous more so than even though you're you're right it was it was a recognized film as a great film and so forth uh even before it fell into the public domain but nonetheless it really became you know uh iconic because of its public domain status so i'll tell you a, a curious little bit, a piece of history. So most of the Three Stooges shorts that were produced by Columbia never fell into the public domain. They're still protected. They're still owned by Columbia. But there was, I believe, four of the shorts that versions of them fell into the public domain. Although the there are copyrighted versions that are maybe more complete. So there was one curly episode was the, the the disorder in the court, but then several Shemp episodes, and one of them was the brideless groom, and uh, and he, Shemp has to get married before a certain uh, date in order to get an inheritance of several million dollars from his uncle, and. At one point, Emil Sitka, who always was playing various roles on the Stooges shorts and was supposed to replace Larry after Larry had his stroke in, in, in the 70s but then, uh, or late 60s, but then it just it didn't work out because Mo already wasn't up to it anymore. So Emil Sitka worked with the Stooges for, for a long time. And in that particular episode, 
he played the justice of peace and he kept saying hold hands you lovebirds and somehow uh because this episode fell into the public domain a lot of the tv stations would play it over and over and over and over and over again and people didn't get didn't get tired of it it be, it gained a certain cult status and i guess in the 1980s uh, Emil Sitka managed to have a little uh, cottage industry of showing up at people's weddings and saying the words, hold hands, you love birds. And that, that's something he gained <laughs> by virtue of the fact that this, that this, that this Three Stooges short, uh, you know, even though the shorts were widely available on television, the, the copyrighted ones, you know, Columbia kind of parted with that. Also, even though something that remained under copyright, the Stooges themselves didn't get paid really what they were worth uh, from from Columbia. Originally, they they were well known. They were famous. They didn't, but they they had a new life in the '60s when, even though it was it it wasn't public domain, it, it cost money, but they were willing to sell these things off for very cheap to television. And there was a new life of the Stooges uh, when when they these shorts were. Well, yeah. Well, again, they definitely you know ended. I guess they ended their life with a little bit of fame. There's also a uh, a 1960s cartoon uh, version of the Three Stooges, which came right. Out. Well, that was that was once they already, uh, and and that also well, I think all of those were in the public domain for a long time, and just recently, uh, good good prints of them like official. Prints of them maybe a few years ago were, were released, but that was another thing that you would always get in the public domain were the Three Stooges cartoons from the 60s with Curly Joe. But the whole idea of Curly Joe, um, you know. Hey, we're going down, I think we're going down the Stooge rabbit hole again. This yeah. Stooge, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, would, I would definitely say that. But I, look, I, you know, it, it, it's always a balancing act. I, I think the, the other thing, I think, which, you know, which we can end off with here is that. One of the things that I think people would be willing to do is, all right, I understand that there is, there is, it's not free. Make it available at a price that people aren't so worried about parting with. So in other words, and I think that's really, you know, you know, when you have something that is so popular, you realize, okay, so, and if it's, if it's, if the streaming services instead of their prices going up you know again if they make it more affordable then more people will have it they'll still be able to uh you know to to still benefit people i i think if the if the the people who hold the strings aren't so greedy and allow it to be out there then i think people will recognize okay you know what do you have oh we can't get it for free all right this is something you gotta you gotta pay for but maybe it's worth signing up for Know, a couple of dollars um, a month. I think the problem is when it becomes twenty dollars a month, sixty dollars, whatever it is. Then I think people um, start fearing uh, that, and then it ends up only being seen by a very limited amount of people. So I think part of it is is, is the balance, you know, recognizing the rights that are there, and that we can't just have the wild west, but also that it it, it should be somewhat commensurate. Remember, it's not gold out there. And it's not like you lose money every time this thing is being shown, right? They lose nothing. It's zen nene, right? Right? Zen nene, really. Um, right. And, and, and I think that 
that if that's understood by the people who hold the rights to this, I think that we can still envision a, a world where these incredible works, um, you know, <laughs> we don't have to have the, the, the bad muzzle of charade, we, even stuff that has been now grabbed back will still be able to be seen and, and enjoyed. Um, you know, by people of, of, of all different incomes. I think I, I, I think there's also this question between streaming and, and having physical media because when you stream you can you can buy or rent or just stream. And so uh, one of the interesting things, you know, I I noticed, you know, when it comes to things, you know, we, we do live in a society where supply and demand, you know, d- dictates a lot of what you know what there is. So things that are in low demand you know, from, from, uh, you know, programs, there's not a tremendous demand in the world for Uncle Moishi. So, you know, Uncle Moishi, a DVD or, or VHS tape, they were very, very expensive, but now you have these streaming, uh, programs where it's not, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's much cheaper to, to stream for the whole year than to buy three, Uncle Moishi DVDs. So, you know, you do have... Right, and, and I think ultimately, I think we have to sort of like put a value. Look, ultimately, it's just some entertainment, you know, yeah. and the fact that you can't download it and actually hold it, you know, this this hoarding, you know, sort of like tendency, it, it's probably good to let go of that as well. But at least uh, programs can be seen and enjoyed in a way where you, you don't feel like you're in a morass of, uh, you know, of of a legal bind. So that's it, my friends. Watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you next time. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.